Well, as I mentioned earlier, we are in 1 Samuel chapter 30, and I'm actually going to split this one into two. I wanted to get all of it in uh, one, but as I uh, prayed through it and walked through it in prep, I thought, you know what, this is too important to not uh, make a two-parter. So for those of you excited for the next series, you're going to have to wait one more week, but uh, it'll it'll be good. So tonight we're going to be in 1 Samuel 30, uh, excuse me, verses 1 through 15. And like last week, I want you to I want you to see how all of scripture points to Jesus. I know that uh, you have probably heard many a sermons, some of you, many a sermons about uh, King David or King Saul and their character. Uh, maybe you've heard a sermon about uh, David and his leadership abilities. Any of those sermons ever cross your path before? That's, a, that's, the, that's the normal way to preach through the historical narratives of 1 Samuel. But I'll tell you what, as I look at chapter 30, and as we've seen this in chapter after chapter after chapter after chapter, here's the historical narrative. Here's what's going on in history. David coming back from uh, the Philistines with his 600 men after wanting to go to battle with them uh, on their side. They said, no, go back. And so he walks back to find his village uh, demolished. Everything burned, everything gone. It's just destruction. And then his wives and all of the families um, of the soldiers he was with, they have been taken off into slavery. And so then he chases them down with these men and they overcome them, rescue them, bring them back. Sound like a great Hollywood movie? (sighs) Knowing that all of Scripture points to the Messiah, points to Jesus, can you not help but to even hear that narrative, the general bullet points, and think, maybe it's pointing us to something more. Maybe it's not just David's a great rescuer, he's a great leader, he's a great military commander. In fact, that's, that's the gospel that it's pointing us to. That's, that's Jesus, that's us and our brokenness, and, and God sending his son to come and rescue us and restoring all of humanity. So I want us to uh, look at this through what I call the gospel lens. Now, what I mean is, I'll explain the gospel lens part in a little bit, but when we see this passage and we we see more to it than just uh, this historical narrative, it's kind of like if you ever put 3D glasses on. Some of you, you probably love like the 3D movies. I I hate them because I got these big old honkers right here. And and if I put more glasses on, it just doesn't work right. But when you you put on 3D glasses, what do you you see? You see a whole other world in there. And you think to yourself, man, things are coming alive. I did not think that we could find this much within the the picture. And and the glasses help that. Or maybe you found yourself um, watching a movie or reading a book that had nothing to do with Christianity. And you found the hero in it, and you thought, that's kind of like Jesus. And you found the bad guy, and you're like, that's kind of like the devil. And I remember I even had one guy after the last Star Wars movie uh, came out, he gave me this big, long rant about how the gospel was in Star Wars, and how Darth Vader is the devil, and how Jesus is the, and all this stuff. I mean, in his mind, he had seen the parallels spiritually. You see, when you have a greater revelation in life, When God gets a hold of you and shows you who his son Jesus truly is, that he is God, that he is here to save us, that we can have new life in him. When you have greater revelation, it changes the way you view your own history, your current circumstances, and the world around you. 
I, I told many of you when I grew up, uh, I had, uh, I, sh- I shouldn't say that, that's assuming I've grown up, right? But when I was growing up, I had um, a guy about five miles away from me that I would play sports against. I, I would uh, play football against him. We played basketball. Sometimes he won, sometimes we won. Uh, I'll be honest, I didn't really like him that much. When we were at family reunions, I would see him and play sports against him. And all through high school, I wouldn't say we were rivals by any means, but um, me and my friends just didn't really like him, even though he was somewhere in my family line. He went to another school. Well, back then, I viewed him as just someone that I I thought was kind of overrated and kind of a punk. And then he went to K-State, and he became a really good football player. And then he got drafted in the second round and went to play for the Green Bay Packers. And then... He was not just okay, but he was really good and now is still a star wide receiver for the Green Bay Packers. And now I look at all of my experiences with him growing up completely different than when I was actually experiencing them. See, when you have greater revelation, it changes things. So when we talk about seeing life, and that's the theme for tonight, seeing life through a gospel lens, we're talking about seeing Your life, again, your history, uh, your current circumstances, the world around you, through the lens of Jesus' perfect life, sacrificial death, and life-giving resurrection. When you see he's God, it changes the way you view everything. And matter of fact, as you mature in the faith, you'll start to see that the Bible isn't just a series of books put together over hundreds of years and given to us and said, here, read it. It's, it's good. But it's an entire story that God had in place and in his plan from the very beginning. It's, it's this story of what we would call the gospel arc. Actually, it's kind of an inverted arc, kind of like a cereal bowl. Um, these four pieces are the pillars to this. You've got creation. God created humanity for his glory, and then it was good, and he gave us free will. Then you see the fall, and so our sin, it entered the world through uh, free will, and it broke us. Things changed. We were destined for death, and we were spiritually already dead. And then you see here, you've got redemption, Jesus meeting us in our mess, God entering the picture, sending his son to earth, and then Over here, you've got the restoration of all humanity. There's going to be a new heaven, a new earth. God's plan will be fulfilled to the max. This ark, this story of the Bible, you will start to see as you mature in your faith. You'll see this in your own life. You'll start to find yourself uh, in your experiences, and you'll say, okay, my brokenness, it's kind of like the fall, but there's hope, and, and, and then there's restoration when I turn to Jesus, and you'll see all of these things, not only in 66 books, but in your own and it's a beautiful thing. That's why I said when we started tonight that I believe to this, this viewing of your life through a gospel lens is either going to be life-changing for you or you're going to look at me like I'm stupid. Um, but I, I think it's worth walking through because that's what God wants to show us through the book of 1 Samuel. And so as we walk through this, just know this is crucial in helping you to share your faith, to know these basic components. Um, But also, some of you are going through some junk right now. And to be able to look at what is happening right now in your life through God's overall big plan and story for us. And when you make disciples, when you teach other people, uh, this is crucial 
in helping them to understand. So as we walk through this, remember, you're not David, right? You are the followers of David. Jesus is the better David, and we are the followers. So let's walk through uh, chapter 30, starting in verse 1. If you've got a Bible, feel free to follow along. If you don't have one, we have some right behind that welcome center. You can reach over and grab one if you'd like it. Now when David and his men came to Ziklag on the third day, so this is David's home base, roughly 55 miles from where he was with the Philistine army. It took them three days to get there, so they're going to be exhausted. The Amalekites had made a raid against the Negev and against Ziklag. So the Amalekites were who David had been fighting against when he was living in the land of the Philistines. They had overcome Ziklag and burned it with fire and taken captive the women and all who were in it, both small and great. They killed no one, but carried them off and went their way. And when David and his men came to the city, they found it burned with fire, and their wives and sons and daughters taken captive. Then David and the people who were with him raised their voices and wept until they had no more strength to weep. So these are full-grown men absolutely broken. And David's two wives also had been taken captive, Ahinoam of Jezreel and Abigail, the widow of Nabal of Carmel. And David was greatly distressed. Verse 6, this is a very important verse. David was greatly distressed, for the people spoke of stoning him, because all the people were bitter in soul, each for his sons and daughters. But David strengthened himself in the Lord his God. All right. In chapter 30, we're going to stop six times and show you this gospel arc. The very first thing we see in the first six verses is the need for a Savior. The need for a Savior. So right off the bat, you see uh, in those four big pillars of the gospel arc, you see creation. Things were good. Right? When David left to go with the Philistines, his family was good. Uh, everything was going well. It was the way that it was supposed to be. Right, And then his free will uh, choice in, in going and being with the Philistines, it left open a gap, right? an opportunity that when, you know, when the cat is away, the mice will play kind of thing. And so David and all his men leave and the Amalekites come and they destroy, they pillage, they burn, they trash everything that was David's home. And so, David and his men are broken. They're utterly in despair. And they find that now there is a need to be rescuers, to go after their family. They don't know fully, probably at this point, whether their family is dead, whether they're still available, but they're going to avenge this. They're going to go after it. But there's all kinds of mixed emotions in the whole thing. Do you see the spiritual parallels in this, right? The historical narrative makes sense. Tragedy. Things are broken, burned down. Someone's going to go save the day. But this is creation and the fall. This is sin entering the world. This is my life and your life broken through our own decisions, our relationships, our attitudes, our hearts. Spiritually, we are broken. Scripture says that the devil is like a thief in the night, like a lion prowling, waiting to pounce. 
And of course, you and I know that we have fallen prey and victim to the enemy's attacks and attempts in our lives over and over and over. We need to be rescued. We need to be saved. So there is a great divide, though, in this passage. This great divide comes between verses 5 and 6. You see, verses 1 through 5 are all about the, the, the fall, the brokenness, the destruction. And then verse 6 is kind of the epitome of that, but there's also some hope, is there not? There, there's a little bit of hope. It says that David was strengthened in the Lord. He was strengthened in the Lord. And so this is crucial because the world lives in verses 1 through 5. The world lives in brokenness and tragedy as being the worst possible ending, right? Most people in America and in the world in general spend their lives trying to avoid brokenness, trying to avoid um, not feeling good enough, insecurities, inadequacies. We're even in our culture built up from a young age to believe, man, you can do whatever you set your heart to. Like, if you, if you want to be this person, you can be this person. If you want to achieve this, you can achieve it. Like, that's just part of our culture. We hate brokenness. We hate it. But for the Christian, this is, this is a whole different ballgame. You see, we don't see brokenness as the worst possible ending. We see it as an ending to a good thing so that a better story can start. For us... Where the world sees heartache, we see hope. We see an opportunity for us to find out that maybe deep down we were broken all along and our external brokenness is just pointing to the fact that we've needed Jesus all along. And we got an opportunity for a new life. That's crucial. That's crucial. You say, where does that come from biblically? You look way back in the beginning where we see in Genesis 1, 2, and 3, God created us and it was good. And then we fell because of our own free will. We chose, we were deceived, and we chose to do the things that we ought not to do. And yet in verse 15 of chapter 3, when God is cursing the old serpent, when he's cursing the devil after what we know as the fall of mankind, sin entering the world, there is a little bit of hope. Have you ever seen that in verse 15? It's called the proto-evangelin. In other words, it means the first gospel, as scholars would uh, call it. The first uh, little bit of hope in God's plan of our brokenness. He says to the old devil, he says that he, he is cursed to be, um, to be on his belly and to eat the, the dirt. And he says that there will be strife, enmity between woman, Eve, and her offspring, and, and the serpent and his offspring. But in verse 15, it says this. It says this weird line that, that if you don't know the full gospel, you wouldn't know exactly what it meant. When speaking of the offspring of uh, the serpent and the offspring of, the, uh, of Eve, it says that you will strike or bruise his heel, but he will crush your head. What does that mean? That's the cross. That's Jesus' body broken and bruised. The offspring of Eve now comes, and he is broken and bruised, and in the moment of death, you know the old devil had to think, I got you right where I want you. This is it. I have killed God. And yet, three days later, there's the resurrection. 
And so the the enemy strikes the heel of God, and yet God crushes the head of the devil. He crushes death. He conquers the grave. And from the very beginning, you see even in the fall of mankind, God's plan for redemption. You see it even in in all the way to Romans chapter 5, verse 8, where it says, While we were still yet sinners, Christ died for us. You picture 400 years after all the prophets had come, after they'd come, they'd gone, they'd said their peace, and they'd left, and all this brokenness after 400 more years, thousands of years after Genesis chapter 3. And yet then, when God looks at us, he says, Now is the time to send my son. Humanity could do nothing for themselves, sitting in their own brokenness without prayer. That's when Jesus comes and bails us out. This is crucial. This is crucial. I want to show you uh, in each one of these steps, and this is why I split this into two parts because I knew y'all don't want to be here for two hours tonight, but I want to show you in each one of these three parts. I want you to see how, how this fits into God's overall story into your story, and into their story. In other words, how we make disciples of others. So, in God's story, the need for a Savior is crucial because Jesus is the hero. God is the focal point of his own story. Mankind, Christians, here in America, will always go astray if we pick up the Bible and we think that the main theme, the primary characters of God's story are you and me. It's not tell you what, thank God it's not. That's too much pressure. That's too much pressure on me and you. God is the hero of his own story because the whole purpose of humanity is to bring him glory, not to be exalted yourself. Now, in God's greatness, when you bring him glory and exalt him and lower yourself, he exalts you, right? He he paves the way for heaven. But God is the hero of his own story. What does it mean to need a savior for your story, for my story? That there is always hope in the brokenness. This is why I said tonight could change things for you because I know most of you know the gospel. You know about sin and you know about Jesus and you know all this stuff. But listen, some of you are going through some junk right now. And the way that you interpret your current circumstances when you see life through a gospel lens is that there is always... (laughs) There is always hope because there's a verse 6. When the world focuses on verses 1 through 5, there's a verse 6. There is strength in the Lord. There is, there is a way. And I'm telling you what, when you see your circumstances and your own brokenness in light of what God has done for us and will do ultimately, there's hope. There's hope. Think about your life. Not just this week, but think about your whole life. If you were going to sum up your story to someone, what would it be? How would you explain your story, the ups and the downs, the ebbs and the flows? And think about the broken times. We all have brokenness. Some of you might have gone through years that really you can just classify in your mind as a time of of brokenness and tragedy. If you have turned to Jesus, I'm willing to bet that brokenness is followed up with hope because you've been healed. And if not, you can still be healed. If you don't turn to Jesus, then 
that brokenness is just the pinnacle of your life. Look at this week, this month, your current circumstances. Some of you come in here tonight stressed. You got heartache. Knowing that this story doesn't end with verse 5, but there's a rescuer and there's hope. How does that change the way you view your financial situation, your relationships that might seem kind of broken right now, the heartache that you came in here tonight with? I'll tell you what, it's a better way to live when you see things through a gospel lens. Let me, let me share briefly. Uh, this week has been interesting. Um, Friday, I went to the gym. Friday's my day off, and I went to the gym. I know that's crazy uh, to see to see me uh, at the gym, but I, I, I went to the gym, and I um, was going through my normal routine. It's not very strenuous, and I was almost done. I was doing some, some uh, lifts, and I sat up off of the bench press, and you know when you know your own body, and you know when you know something's not quite right? Something wasn't quite right. Now, I was kind of huffing and puffing, and... Uh, and I noticed my heart was beating really fast. And like, you know, you ever had a palpitation? You kind of felt it on the outside of your chest. You're like, ooh, you ever even been able to look down and see your heart, your chest kind of moving a little bit? Well, it's normal, I think, for most of us to have that once or twice, once in a while. But it's like 10 seconds. I'm boom, boom, boom. 15, 20 seconds, boom, boom, boom. I'm like, something ain't right. I'm not dying but I, something is not right. I went up, I went over to get a, a drink of water, and I kind of felt dizzy and lightheaded. And I was like, whew, man, I feel, my heart is racing and it is pounding. Something isn't right. I, I stopped my workout and I, I went home. Don't drive if you're in that position. I, I drove home um, and Tara wasn't there, but I called her. I said, I, um, I don't remember much from my EMT days, but like, I might be in like some tachycardia or something like something is happening. And she came home and, and she would listen to my heart through the stethoscope. And she said, something's wrong. You're missing a beat. And then it's fast and it's fast and it's normal. And it's fast. It was all over the place. It was all over the place. And we debated, what do we do? And so we ended up uh, saying, let's go to the ER. And then, no, we don't go to the ER. Let's go to the ER. Let's go. We went to MedExpress. And they hooked us up to an EKG. And they said just within like a minute, they said, your heart is in AFib flutter. So it's in a whole other rhythm right now. You need to go to the emergency room. And so uh, we went to the ER. And I spent the next several hours there. And they couldn't figure out what was wrong with me. And they didn't know why a 32-year-old would have it. Not too crazy if you're 60, 70 years old. And in many cases, it's just not that big of a deal. But for me, I could tell it was pounding. I I could not live this way if we did not change it. So they put me on some meds and whatnot. A couple hours later, um, with this thing still pounding, I was eating some fruit snacks. And it popped back into rhythm. I was like, my my heart. (laughs) My heart's back to normal. Moral of the story, working out will make you sick, and eating fruit snacks will make you healthy. So I just, just so you know where this is headed. And so I'm thinking, okay, life's back to normal. I'm still taking the meds. Well, come Monday night, right? I'm sitting at home, and Tara and I were eating supper, and, and I look at a text message, and all I can see are the words over on this side of the screen I can't see over there. For almost an hour, like I lose most of the sight in my right eye. Now, there was an increased chance of stroke because of the stuff I was going through. And, and so Tara, after hearing some of my symptoms, she's thinking, maybe you had like a little uh, a TIA, like this, this uh, little stroke. And I'm thinking to myself, 
Maybe. Um, I don't know what's going on. And so we go back to the ER the second time this week. And they checked me out, do a CT, and they said everything was fine. But I had my first uh, migraine, what they call um, an ocular migraine, and where you might lose uh, sight for an hour or less, but things go back to normal. And so now I'm in the process uh, of going to uh, cardiologists and all these other doctors and figuring things out. And in general, I think I should be fine. Just don't work out ever again. Doctor's orders. Why do I tell you this? Because we're at the beginning of this story. And we know that in about 60 days, we're going to get a financial bomb in the mail when all these bills start coming in. And it doesn't look like they're probably, let's be honest, going to figure out what's wrong. And I'm going to end up just going back with, on to the rest of my life. And, and then maybe it'll happen again. Maybe it won't. Who knows? But I think we know enough about the story to know, eh, probably was random. Who knows? I don't, I don't know. But right now, the story doesn't look like it has a great, beautiful ending. It just kind of looks blah. But when you look at that story through a gospel lens, you know, somehow, someway, God's going to redeem this. Bills ain't going to be fun to pay. May never have the answer that I want. May just look back at this time and say, that was just weird. I'm going to live looking over my shoulder wondering, will that ever happen again? But God's got this. I've seen his track record of faithfulness and the way he uses brokenness to bring healing, not only to me, but to others. And seeing the rest of the story before it's even painted gives you hope. It gives you hope. There's always hope in your brokenness. In their story, when you're making disciples of other people, how does it change things to know that we need a Savior? They need to see themselves as broken if they want to be truly healed. They've got to see themselves as broken. Now, now, you know that when you're pouring into someone, when you're helping someone to follow Christ, there are many people, maybe even the majority of people, who already know they're broken, right? Like, you generally don't have to tell an addict that they're broken. You generally don't have to tell most people they're broken. They get it. But there are sometimes, even for the people in this room, where we stop remembering <laughs> We still need Jesus. Matter of fact, I was uh, having coffee the other day with a man who, from the outside, looks like his life is really well put together. He has a great job, a great family. He, he's a pretty solid dude in the faith. But I've been meeting with him for a while, and I know that there's areas of his life that God has been moving in and prompting him in, but he doesn't he doesn't want to necessarily deal with them. And we were probably 30 minutes in and it was all butterflies and roses. And it was just a wonderful conversation. He was telling me all the good things about his life. And he was even admitting to me, he said, I think I'm a pretty good dad. I'm a pretty good husband. Like he was saying these things to me. And I said, listen, buddy, I can't, I can't just have this conversation. Is there anything, is there anything going on? I'm going to pry a little bit. And, and again, not everyone needs this, but just to give you an example. And so I start prying, and I start asking him some hard questions. I say, listen, do you want to grow spiritually in the areas that God wants you to grow? Or are you only interested in keeping the status quo the status quo? Well, I guess, I don't know. I mean, I think I want to grow where he wants to go. Well, maybe this. Maybe here's an area that from the outside I've seen, uh, maybe that you could grow in. And oh, I don't know about that. He didn't really want to talk about it, but I kept digging. I kept pushing. I kept pushing. I kept pushing. And we went pretty deep 
into some issues that God has been, I believe, wanting to, to get a hold of in his life for a long time. But I say all that to say, we didn't get there naturally or easily. As a disciple maker, sometimes you've got to dig a little bit to help even what seems like mature Christians see that there is still work to be done. That God still has some areas where he wants to sanctify and transform. This is crucial. When we in this room get to the point, if we get to the point where we think this whole brokenness thing applies to the world, but it doesn't apply to the people in here because we placed our faith in Jesus and we're good, we got issues. We got issues. The gospel doesn't do much for you when you don't realize you still need him today. Verse 7. So the first part of the ark is the fall, the brokenness. Verse 7 says, And David said to Abiathar the priest, the son of Ahimelech, remember Saul killed all the other priests, so there's only one old boy left, and he's hanging out with David. Bring me the ephod. So Abiathar brought the ephod to David, and David inquired of the Lord. Remember the the ephod was this uh, part of, of the breastplate, of this robe that the priest would use. And there was something called a Urim and a Thummim inside of this. Now we don't know exactly what they were, but they were some kind of piece, some kind of, some kind of something that these priests would use in communication with God. And so throughout 1 Samuel, we've seen that brought up. But David is, is following protocol and inquiring of the Lord. And David inquired of the Lord, shall I pursue after this band? Shall I overtake them? And he answered him, Pursue, for you shall surely overtake and shall surely rescue. Remember, Jesus being the better David, he is the great rescuer. Verse 9, so David set out and the 600 men who were with him, and they came to the brook Besor. So this is about 16 miles away. So over three days, they come 55 miles. They cry like babies for their families. They are broken, and then they walk another 16 miles. They're tired. They're tired. Where those who were with him left, who were left behind stayed. But David pursued. Now, verse 10 is important. David pursued he and 400 men, but 200 men stayed behind who were too exhausted to cross the brook Besor. All right. Second thing we see as part of the ark is the righteousness of the Savior. The righteousness of the Savior. So, Before battle, David and Saul both seek, in the last three chapters we've seen it, supernatural guidance. One of them was not so good. Remember the medium at Endor and and this uh, demonic uh, force that Saul sought? Now you got David and he's seeking God and he's showing his righteousness. He's literally choosing the right thing. And so these three verses here show us the righteousness of David as a rescuer. And of course, Jesus, being the better David, is ultimately the one who is pure and holy and righteous. And Jesus not only showed us in his life that he was sinless, but he also modeled what complete dependence on the Father looked like. He was righteous in all of his ways. He was pure Now, righteousness is crucial because the whole Old Testament sacrificial system is built on righteousness. And the reason that it continued in sacrificing animals for as long as it did is because animals in and of themselves are not ultimately righteous. 
You just keep sacrificing them over and over and over. They can cleanse one sin, but they can't cleanse a life of sin. And so the sacrificial system would be here today if we did not have an ultimate sacrifice. For those of you who were with us as we walk through Hebrews, you know this is what most of that book is about, how Jesus is the worthy, perfect sacrifice. So how does this righteousness matter in God's big picture, the story of all of Scripture? Is that only Jesus is righteous enough to play the role of the rescuer. For your sin, for my sin, only Jesus is good enough. So I could die for you, but it doesn't matter. You could die for me, but it don't matter. Because one sinner dying for another sinner doesn't really change anything. It might be honorable, but it doesn't pay the price for sin. Again, God is the hero of his own story. He's the hero of his own story. There's no competition. Now, it's, it's important because we see uh, in the last couple verses... It showed that there were basically two groups of people. There were David who pursued, he was the rescuer, and then there were 400 that tried to keep up with him and 200 who stopped. And I think this is crucial for us because God actually calls us to be both. The 200 who stop and trust that the rescuer is enough in and of himself. He doesn't need us but also calls us to be the 400 who in the power of the leader, the rescuer, Jesus, were able to follow him and live righteously. Now, I imagine there's people in this room who have felt like the 200. Maybe you even feel like that this week. Where you say, I can't do this anymore. I'm exhausted. This changes your story when you see the righteousness of Jesus and that you and I have the opportunity to find freedom and rest in trusting his righteousness and not our own. Because isn't that ultimately what the 200, when they stop at the brook, now this was the largest um, river essentially uh, in the area. And so after all of that running, 55 miles over three days, exhausting, crying, all of what they went through, and then 16 more miles, and then they get here. Now they're exhausted, and they stop. But in part of what they're stopping for, they know, David, you got this. And you don't need us. And we're going to find out at the end of this chapter, uh, David's response to them, and it's a good one. But for you and I, when we see that living up to the standards of God are so overwhelming, that nobody in this room in and of ourselves could do it. There's freedom in just stopping and resting. And saying, you know what? I trust that Jesus is good enough for me. I trust that he can do what only he can do. And I can't do what only he can do. And there's rest. God calls us to that. God calls us to be one of the 200. Who stops and trusts that the leader's got it. That Jesus has got it. You see... Some of us probably feel exhausted tonight. You can be honest with yourself. Are you in this boat? Where you've been trying to keep up with standards and expectations, maybe of the people around you, your coworkers, your boss, your family, your friends, because they want you to be good enough. They want you to be acceptable in their sight. They have hopes, they have dreams for you, they have plans for you. And that's exhausting. 
Why? Because when it comes to comparing ourselves to one another and the expectations and standards that we have for one another, there's a little something in us that makes us continue to pursue them because we think they're attainable, right? Like we, we assume in our mind that if you put an expectation or standard in my life that like I can somehow do it. Like if your parents put an expectation on your life or they have a hope or dream for you, you grow up thinking I can attain what they hope for me. And the breaking point is when you realize one day, maybe you can't. Maybe you can't meet the standards of everyone else around you. And so you either find relief in saying, I can't, I can't run this race. I can't be who you want me to be. I can't do it. I'm going to trust that Jesus makes me good before God. And, and that's enough. That's enough. But those who are truly exhausted aren't the ones who stop and realize that. They're the ones who keep going because they think it's attainable. It's kind of like the old, um, the old adage, um, if you're in the woods and you're being chased by a bear and you've got all your friends around, that you don't have to be the fastest. you just got to be faster than how many? The slowest guy. And we feel that way spiritually. But that's not the way that it works when it comes to heaven. That if you're just better than your neighbor, somehow God will think that's great and give you an applause and say, come on in, heaven's open to you. Because your brokenness is not in relation to the people around you, it's in relation to God's holiness. And we just don't measure up. Or the old illustration that you've probably seen from time to time, where uh, each one of us could come to the front here and have uh, a jumping competition. And some of us might jump 11 inches and some 20 and some 2 and some 14. And we would feel good in comparison to each other. But if someone then said, well, the goal was not to jump higher than the person next to you, but to jump to the moon, then you'd say, why even try? Why even try? For those of us who follow Christ, I imagine there's areas, maybe this week, that you've seen in your life to where Jesus is much more worthy of being the decision maker and leading the way on it, but you've tried to make the decisions. You've tried to lead the way. And you know you're not as worthy as he is, uh, but you in your own strength are trying to do it. We've been searching for a worship leader now for, what, um, six weeks maybe? And we have a small team godly men and women who are walking through this process with us. And I got a lot of different things on, on my plate. And of course, I'm praying about it and walking through it. Um, I haven't, you know, I've been through it before. And so I kind of know what to expect. But I'll be honest, um, you know, there's a lot of ebbs and flows in the process. There's a lot of people, you would not believe how many people apply for a job uh, without thinking that they might actually get the job. And so you can go through interview one, even two, before you get that phone call saying, well, my family talked about it. My wife doesn't want to move to Salina. You're like, wait, didn't you? <laughs> didn't, you didn't you? You filled out the application. We had an interview. And you're saying, and that happens once. That happens twice. And I'll be honest, after maybe the second time, I was depressed I even told the team, I'm like, I'm depressed. I just, I'm just, I'm just kind of depressed. You emotionally engage with these folks and you pray fervently for it just to find out they never really even considered coming. 
It's like getting dumped <laughs> on your prom date every single day. That's what it feels like. And you start to question yourself. And you're like, gosh, I've never been rejected this much. It's weird. But then, after a couple rejections, realizing, you know what, this is the process. Doesn't matter what church you're part of. This is, this is how it goes. And God will have the right person. But when I saw rejection number two turn into rejection number three, I pulled back and I, I emailed the team and I said, listen, this is where the old devil wants to get in and discourage us. This is where God wants to see, is, is Crosspoint going to compromise or are we going to stay strong? This, this is where God wants to see, are we going to press in? Are we going to fast? Are we going to pray? Are we going to seek him more than we've ever sought him before? Are we going to be patient? Are we going to wait? Are we going to get discouraged? Or are we going to find courage in him and just stay on the path? I said, so let's buckle down. Let's pray. Let's fast. Let's hit this harder than ever. You want to know what the tipping point for me was? To be honest, to some extent, I was cruising f- through those first couple weeks hoping that this would work itself out pretty quick and we could go on with life. But when I realized this is so much bigger than me, that this ain't going to happen the way God wants it to unless only God does what only God can do, I felt a release of freedom in the process that I didn't feel at the beginning. So even though it actually feels worse <laughs> or it looks worse from the outside, I feel better than ever. And I got to believe there's some of us going through some things right now where maybe you, you have been praying, uh, but you haven't truly been walking in the strength of the Lord. And you've been hoping that you can just kind of get through it and, and it's more taxing on you than it ever should have been. And, and you need to find out, hey, this is where I need to really give it to him fully so I can find rest. The situation might look more grim than it does good, but you'll have more peace than you ever had before. And in their story, when we make disciples of other people, when we pour into other people, we've got to remind them <laughs> that we don't abuse grace. Even though Jesus is the righteous one, it doesn't mean we don't live righteously. You see, the question of righteousness in the life of the believer isn't whether we'll pursue righteousness. Because we're the 200 who stop back and we rest and trust that the leader has got it. But we're also the 400 who keep following the leader. And the difference is not whether we pursue the leader and pursue righteousness and holiness in our lives. The difference is by what strength will you pursue it in. How many of you have ever walked? You can just raise your hand. Has anyone here ever walked in their life? You know if you walk long enough, it will be tiring. Right? You've done this before. How many of you have ever been in a no-gravity uh, little chamber? Ever been to any kind of aerospace uh, deal where you walked where there wasn't gravity? Um, nobody? A couple of you, maybe you've been in something, I would imagine, Kansas City, Wichita, they probably have something like that. Well, if you do, you recognize that you can still walk. It's just a whole lot easier. Like it, it, There's a freedom, there's a, a lightness that, that you, you feel uh, where the heaviness, it, it isn't there. There's no gravity. Same walk, one's just much more easy than the other. And that's what it's like pursuing righteousness in the life of a believer. When you do it uh, in the power of the Holy Spirit, you can pursue holiness, not with the stress of how you felt when your parents put expectations on you or your coworkers said, you got to meet our expectation or your boss did but in a relief, in a freeing way that you get to freely serve him. You get to freely walk in holiness. 
It's what we call the great exchange. Martin Luther termed that. Second Corinthians chapter 5, it says that he who knew no sin became sin so that we might become the righteousness of God. We give our sin to Jesus. He bore it on the cross. His righteousness, he imputes, he gives to you so that when we stand before God, we are considered righteous. We are considered righteous. All right, last but not least, verse 11. They found an Egyptian. So now we got a whole new guy in this story. They found an Egyptian in the open country and brought him to David. And they gave him bread and he ate. They gave him water to drink. And they gave him a piece of cake, of a cake of figs and two clusters of raisins. And when he had eaten, his spirit revived, for he had not eaten bread or drunk water for three days and three nights. And David said to him, To whom do you belong? And where are you from? And he said, I am a young man of Egypt, servant to an Amalekite. So keep in mind, David probably wants to punch him at this point. Like, You are a servant of the one who just raided and possibly killed all of our families. But he blesses him, he revives him, he feeds him. Sound familiar? And my master left me behind because I fell sick three days ago. So he was left for dead. We had made a raid against the Negev of the Cherethites and against that which belongs to Judah and against the Negev of Caleb. And we burned Ziklag with fire. And David said to him, Will you take me down to this band? And he said, Swear to me by God that you will not kill or deliver me into the hands of my master and I will take you down to this band. Last thing we see tonight anyhow. In this ark, the invitation of the Savior. The invitation of the Savior. So this new character that comes, this Israelite, this or excuse me, this Egyptian servant of the Amalekites, he's on the wrong side. He's serving the enemy. He's got a master who is mean and he doesn't really care about him. He left him for dead. He used him and abused him and said, Okay, <laughs> you get sick, you're done. And so he is refreshed by David, even though David should kill him. He is invited by David into this new plan to help under a new kingship. Are you seeing the spiritual parallels in all this? You and I, Ephesians 2, being servants of the enemy, leading to death, find that we have an opportunity to serve a new king and be part of a greater plan, a greater plan. Of course, the important part in all this, there's several important parts, but the fact that this servant recognizes under the old plan and the old regime, uh, he was left for dead. Our old lives leave us for dead. And when you recognize what your sin was doing to you and how serious it is, you'll come to appreciate when a new king comes out of nowhere and says, even though I should kill you because of my holiness and your unrighteousness, You should be dead before me. That's the difference between us. When you find grace from a master like that, when he had the upper hand, it makes you want to be under that kind of king. Big picture, the invitation of the Savior in God's story 
shows that God invites you to encounter him and join his plan by serving a new king. I've shared with you many stories before, and and I'll skip one tonight, but I have shared with you that as a daddy, I don't get glory and, and enjoyment out of just serving my family or doing work for my family. Uh, It's not the work itself as much as it is who I do it with. And as a dad taking my little boy by the hand and doing projects, even though they take three times as long (laughs) as if I would have just done it by myself, is where the Father's glory comes from. So God's saying, I created man, and I know sometimes you guys mess up. Matter of fact, all the time we mess up. But I still want to include you into this plan. I want you to serve me. God gets glory when broken vessels are used for holy purposes. And that's everyone in this room. For our story, what does it mean, this invitation of the Savior to join his plan? Is that we got to stop trying to fix our broken kingdom and switch kingdoms. Is there anyone in here stubborn enough to work hour after hour on fixing something, whether it be uh, a part on your mower or something on your computer? Over and over and over, a relationship, you're just stubborn enough to where you will not let it go. And you can buy a new one, you can have someone else repair it, but you and your pride and stubbornness say, I'm just going to keep doing it. Because now it's a challenge. Well, I would say there's a whole bunch of people who do that spiritually. They do it spiritually. I remember when I was growing up, my first truck that I loved was a 1984 Chevy Scottsdale. It was so rusted out in the bed that I literally could have put half my body in this thing through the hole of rust that I had. It was just nasty looking, but it was mine. It was my first truck, and I loved it. And I drove that thing around, even with the engine smoking. And my dad knew that I loved this truck, and he let me pour my hard-earned money as a 16-year-old into this truck. And he loved me so much that he even started to pour some of his money into it. And he said this, he he pulled me aside, he said, Ryan, if you're going to do this, you're going to do it right. I said, yeah, that means you're going to pay for it, right? and, And he did. And I could even tell you the places we went, we had to get the wheels aligned and we worked on this thing. I kid you not, we don't, we didn't have a bunch of money, but over several years, we pumped $10,000 into restoring this old truck just to find that it wasn't anywhere close to being restored. But my dad knew how much I loved it. And so he let me invest everything I had into it. But then I got smart and I went to a car lot. And I found a newer vehicle that was used, but still very new to me and much better than the hunk of junk I kept pumping my money into. And I paid about the same amount of money for it. And I remember the first day I drove that thing, having low miles and thinking to myself, oh my, it's not rusted out and it doesn't smoke. And like, this is amazing. And this is actually cheaper than that thing. And I remember thinking to myself as a 19-year-old kid, I should have done this. A couple years ago. I should have done this a couple years ago. You see, this is the beauty and the invitation. God knows you've been beating your head against some relationships, some situations, and he's been patient with you. But you've got to take him up on the invitation to leave 
a broken kingdom behind. Stop trying to fix it and build it. And serve a king in a brand new kingdom. And how does it change their story, everyone around us? We've got to remind those that we pour into as we make disciples that until they encounter Jesus and submit to his plan, they are going to feel like this Egyptian, just a wanderer. How many times have we poured into people, and maybe we're those people, where we have known the truth of Jesus and the invitation to submit our lives to him, And yet, we, as the Egyptian, come up to him and say, David, thank you. You have revived me. You have refreshed me. I'm not going to serve him anymore. I'm going to serve you. And instead of saying, here, I'll take you. We'll go. And we'll go in the direction you want. We say, you know what? Can I, can I get you to just follow me where I want to go? And we say, God, can you just bless the plan that I have? And God, could you just give me the job that I really want? And God, I know this relationship has been nasty and kind of messed up, but I really want this one to work. I got my heart set on it. Could you help me with that? And before you know it, we are under this deception and that we're following Jesus, but we're not really following Jesus. We're trying to get Jesus to follow us. And so we know all about the invitation, uh, but we're fighting constantly. And so we pour into people and we find that maybe this is the issue. They're not truly submitting their lives to Jesus. And maybe, again, we are those people. You are if you find yourself with um, confusion. You ever ask yourself, am I even saved? <laughs> like, like am, I even, am I even following Jesus? Because it's just a mess right now. Probably because you're not wanting to give part of your life under his lordship. Or maybe you've had frustration. You ever had this thought before? Or someone that you're discipling? We'll just say it's your friend, right? I don't really experience God's power. I don't feel like I, I experience his presence. And you're frustrated. The reason is because you're just trying to get his power and presence to bless your stuff. And he's saying, you only see my power and presence in my will. And this is about you aligning with my will, not me aligning with your will. And what that eventually leads to is frustration and confusion to the point where some of us bail. We say, this is a mess. It's not worth it. Or the alternative is we submit fully. And every day we got to choose to keep submitting. Because you can submit tonight and tomorrow morning and try to take it back up, right? But when you submit fully, that's when you find the most relief and you can actually breathe and you find God's power and his presence is exactly where he's always promised. And that's smack dab in the middle of his will. As you leave here tonight, Look at the things around you. This week, look at your own story, your own history. Even the things that are going through your mind right now. Or things happening this week. Look at your friends, the people you're pouring into. And see their lives, see your own life. 
as a story and view it through gospel lens. In the brokenness, know that there's hope. Know that you're not Jesus, but he is, so let him be Lord. And experience the freedom in the invitation of switching kingdoms. Stop trying to fix the broken one that was never meant to be perfect and join his kingdom. Let's pray.